Hello. Hi, everyone. And welcome back to another episode of... Saturday the 14th. This is Maggie. I'm Maddie. And we are here today to talk to you about a boring movie. Yeah, um, we're going to be talking about Firestarter. And I gotta be honest, when we talked about doing this, I was really excited because I thought that like the concept of it sounded really cool. And I love Stephen King. Yeah, Stephen King's great. I'd never seen it before. I had like a really cool pyrokinesis shirt, totally inspired by this movie. And I was yeah. like, yeah, I've never seen it. I'm down. I fell asleep the first time I tried watching it. Dude, it is slow. It, it's weird. It's like a lot of things do happen. Yeah, it is, it's kind of strange because like if you just read the plot of it, or I guess if you've read the book, because the book is supposed to be really good and really scary, neither of us were able to read the book in time for this episode. Um, but by all accounts, it looks like it should be an interesting story. And then it's not when it's in the movie form. It's very weird. It, it So much happens and, and it's so uninteresting. I think maybe because it doesn't have like a really good like arc. It's like this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And it isn't like a story. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it has like a middle or a beginning a middle conflict and like a good resolution. I guess that's true. It sort of just seems like a bunch of stuff happens. Which yeah. is like a lot easier to do in a book than it is in a movie. That's true. Also... Um, as we kind of dealt with when we talked about The Shining, one of the issues that I had with this movie is that the characters are not very well developed. They're not. Which I think is a major issue with Stephen King adaptations because Stephen King, like, so much of his writing is, like, really getting you inside of the characters' heads. And, like, he gets you in the villains' heads and the heroes' heads. And, like, there's a lot of that character building and character development, so you feel like you know them really, really well. And just that doesn't happen in this movie. And even things like there's a scene in the movie where a postman is killed, and in the book he isn't killed, but you actually hear see the entire scene from the postman's like point of view, and like he gets really emotional and talks about like the betrayal of like the U.S. government and stuff, and. It's one of those things where it's like you can't ever get that from a movie in the way that you can get that from like reading an internal dialogue. Right. And they didn't really like make up for it in any way. No. They just like cut the stuff that you can't show on screen and didn't like replace it with another scene that would like have a similar effect. Nope. And then they just had really bad special effects and really bad music. I mean, it was the 80s. So the special effects and the music were like very 80s. <laughs> But, but definitely when like, you watch them now, you're like, ooh, yikes. They were, like, bad 80s, not, like, good 80s. Yeah, oh, for sure. We're not talking, like, the cool, like, you like, know, fun, gory special effects of some of the other movies that we've talked about or anything like that. It's just, like... Like, when she stops the bullet and burns it, it's just clearly, like, a shot of, like, a big explosion that is, like, miniaturized. Yeah, all of the all of the bullets coming at her were just, like, little, like... It reminded me of um, Birdemic. Yes. I don't know if you guys have seen Birdemic. If you have not, you should definitely check it out. It's terrible. It's, it's so, so bad. bad. It's like a modernization of the birds. It sucks. It's awful. It's amazing. But the way that they animate the birds is they just like get little like animated, almost Basically, like clip like, art. Like MS paint birds that are just flapping in place. Yeah. And then the actors are like waving hangers at these things that clearly are not actually there and it's really right fun. and that's really the kind of the vibe that i got from like a lot of the special effects here which was like, like obviously overlaid there's a lot of 80s movies that we've seen and i haven't like thought the special effects were so bad yeah plus i mean when you think about all the action movies of the 1980s like that was like the time of explosions yeah. shit just exploded like left and right but i don't know it was really it was weird in this movie maybe they just weren't making enough bullets explode in those movies i guess it was unprecedented territory um, but all right, so we've we've kind of talked around some of the the plot, so we'll actually get into what this movie is and what it's about. Yeah, um, this it, movie was made in 1984. It was. It was directed by Mark L. Lester and written by Stanley Mann, based on the novel by Stephen King. Um, it starred David Keith as Andy, the dad, mm -hmm. 
Um, baby Drew Barrymore as Charlie, little Charlie or Charlene, Charlene Roberta, um, Freddie Jones, Heather Locklear's in it for approximately 10 seconds. Um, Martin Sheen, also very young. Yes. George C. Scott playing a Native American. Confusing. Or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to tell. But we'll get to that. Um, and then Art Carney and Louise Fletcher. And it had one of the bigger budgets, probably because of the special effects. Uh, so it has one of the bigger budgets that we've discussed. It had a $12 million budget. And in terms of how much it made, it actually didn't make very much. And I'm not sure they recouped all their costs. Because the box office, it's either $17.1 million or $18.9 million. And a movie's production budget doesn't include things like marketing and um, some of the other things that come after they actually make the movie. And so the studios could have not done so hot on this. Yeah. Which so apparently it is showing on the Sundance channel like five times in the next week. Oh, great. So maybe they're making all those residuals. <laughs> I guess so. Um, so this movie starts off and we see Andy McGee, who is uh, David Keith. And he's running through the streets of this town with his daughter, Charlie. He's carrying her along and they're being chased by this car full or like two car fulls of these mysterious men. And yeah, they're running through, they escape into a crowd, and then from there grab a cab, and Andy uses a little weird mind control trick, and his nose starts bleeding, and he hands the driver like a $5 bill, saying we need to go to the airport, um, but says it's a $500 bill, and the cab driver originally is like, the airport's too far, I'm not going to go there. And then he sees like, oh, I'm not going to turn down a $500 bill. Yeah, apparently there were still like, $500 bills by this point had been discontinued, but there were still enough of them in circulation that it was like, there could be one. But I have never seen a $500 bill because they don't make them anymore. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. I actually didn't know that $500 bills were a thing. It felt really fake, but it's just because they discontinued them in like the, I guess like the 60s, I think. Gotcha. So So it's like a $2 bill now. Yeah, pretty much. You don't see them very often, but when you do, you get really excited. Yeah. Um... And so then we get a flashback. There's a lot of flashbacks in this movie, and I guess there's a lot of flashbacks in the book, but, like, I think it might work better in a book than in this it movie. it was really obvious that there are flashbacks. Yeah. Even though everyone looked like they were the exact same age. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But yeah, so we go to this um, flashback, and we see Andy is in a group of other, like, college-aged-looking people. I think they say that they're all students at some point. And um, they're going to be getting a dosage given to them of some sort of drug called Lot 6. And so the way that they claim that it's going to work is that half of them are going to get just distilled water and half of them are going to get Lot 6. And then they're going to compare. It's a double blind. So, like, nobody, like, even they don't know who gets what. Um, And then they're going to, like, be able to compare people's results based on, you know, how everybody starts acting because they say it's a mild hallucinogenic. So Andy, while they're all waiting to get the dosages, he kind of starts flirting in the girl in the bed next to him. Um, she asks, like, when are we going to get our money? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm broke, too. <laughs> Which is an amazing first line. Yeah. Like, killer. That's and how to... Everyone just looks high as fuck. It clearly took place, like, years before, and so they're yeah. very 70s-ish. Yeah. And the girl next to him is played by Heather super Locklear. young Heather Locklear. Like, very um, young. But so they get the drugs, and they're, like, staring at each other. And she's like, that was a nice compliment. He's like, what do you mean? And she says, I'm like, you said that my hair is like copper set on fire. And he's like, yeah, but I didn't say that out loud. I thought it. But one, she's very blonde. How is her yeah, hair all like copper really set on fire? I didn't get that. She's not a redhead. So that didn't make a lot of sense. I feel like if she had been a redhead and then like the copper set on fire mm-hmm. and then like foreshadowing for like the little fire starter baby they're going to have. Yeah, that might have worked better. But then they couldn't have gotten baby Heather Locklear to do That's it. That's true. So. Or they could have just dyed her hair. Also possible. Yeah. 
Um, but so, like, she starts to be able to read his mind, and, like, everybody else around them is, like, really freaking out. So it becomes pretty obvious that, like, there is no control group. They're all fucked up on this drug. Yeah, like, this one drug. guy, like, scratches his own eyes out. Yeah. And meanwhile, Vicky, who's Heather Lockbear, and uh, Andy are just, like, staring lovingly into each other's eyes, like, telepathically talking about how they've loved each other forever and they'll love each other for a thousand years. And yeah, there's, like, a very... Div, like a diverse vibe happening in the room. Like they're having a great time and everyone else is having a really bad it's time. Like, it's like an acid thing. It's like some people have really good trips and some people do not. I guess, yeah. Some people become psychic. Yep. Also, during this scene, one of the guys asks if this experiment is being run by the shop. And the guy who's doing the experiment, Dr. Wanless, is like, no, they're not involved at all. But, like, we don't really know who they are at that point in time, but they become very important later. So remember that name. The shop are the bad guys. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, But anyway, we get back to the present, and Andy and his daughter arrive at the airport. Um, The guys are still following them, and they're kind of, like, talking about, like, how Andy ended up being, like, telepathic and shit. Yeah, they kind of sort of explain how his powers work and that like they're that his daughter has some kind of power as well and um they're concerned that like if andy keeps using his powers he's gonna have like little like pinprick uh what did they say pinprick hemorrhages in his brain which could like potentially kill him so like that's why his nose is bleeding it's because like he's damaging his own brain like every time he tries to use his brain powers and now it's just a trope that every time someone does anything even slightly telekinetic you get a nosebleed. Yeah, it's interesting. Apparently this had, like, way more of an effect on a lot of the way that we view, um, like, psychic and superpower stuff, which we'll get into more later as well. But yeah. it's, it's interesting because, I mean... It's such I, a boring movie. I would give movie. that more to the book than the movie. Oh, yeah, probably. it's such a boring movie that seeing that this had, like, a huge effect on media is pretty interesting. But, yeah, let's give it to Stephen King and not to this movie. Yeah. And so they get into the airport and... Um, they being Andy and the daughter, right. not the bad guys. Right. And so Andy and his daughter, Andy and Charlie are in the airport and Andy's like, okay, I'm going to have to steal some money. And she's like, that's bad. And he's like, yes, but remember we talked about how there's big bad and there's little bad and this is like little bad. And she's yeah. like, big bad's what I did to mommy, right? He's and like, yeah. She's talking about how she like, her made her mommy scream and you're like, oh God, what did she actually do to her? Yeah. Um, but so in order to steal the money, what they're going to do is they go into like a phone booth and Andy uses like his power and forces the phone booth to somehow like release all of its quarters. Yeah. This is interesting because they, they do a weird job in the movie. They don't fully explain what his powers are. Like other than this, you really only ever see him use his powers on people. Like, Except for to when he's changing minds. the television channel later that's on. That's true. That's true. But all of like the major plot points are him like using it to like control people's thoughts. Yeah. And then in this one, he's just it seems like he's controlling the machine's thoughts, but it's really just that he can also move shit with his mind. They just don't really like talk about do it. Do much with it. Yeah, and so while he's doing this, um, Charlie, so baby Drew Barrymore, is watching through the door of the telephone booth. And there's this pregnant woman who's, like, really young, and she's talking to her boyfriend who's, like, a soldier in uniform. Mm -hmm. And she's pregnant. Did I say that? I already said that. I think so, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, And so she's saying stuff like... um, you, I can't be alone, like, I need you. And he's like, well, you've been with all these other guys, like, my best friend told me. And, like, saying, like, it's not mine. Like, you sleep around all the time. And she's like, no, I don't. That's a lie. Like, please, like, you can't leave me. And Charlie's watching this. And considering she's, like, eight years old, 
At least Drew Barrymore was eight years old. Yeah. I'm not sure how old Charlie's supposed to be. She gets real fired up. She does. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, she, but she gets really upset for this pregnant woman, and she sets the soldier's boots on fire yeah, with he her goes, mind. He goes running away, and he, like, jumps into a toilet, and he puts them out by, like, stomping in the toilet. I think he runs into the women's bathroom, too, yeah. because these security guys, like, come in after him. They're like, let's go, guy. <laughs> it's, fuck, it's weird. And so once that happens... Um, Charlie's like freaking out she yeah. feels so bad because she doesn't like using her power like it doesn't ever happen on purpose really this is another issue that I have with this movie because she's obviously focusing really hard on him like it doesn't seem like she is just like gets mad and something happens she actually in that scene seems like she is intentionally trying to make something happen and then as soon as something does happen she's like oh I didn't mean to do it which I don't think is actually how it's supposed to be like it really is like the story-wise, it seems like it's supposed to be an accident, but then the way that they shoot it, it seems like very intentional. I think intentional. it's just because she, uh, yeah, I think it's the way it's shot. I don't think it's like the plot. I think just like every time something like pyrokinetic happens, like they zoom in on her and her hair starts blowing. Yeah, and I think that, she just stares at them for so long. Yeah, she's just eavesdropping. Yeah, and then she gets mad, lights his boots on fire. Yep. But anyway, she's upset about it. She feels really bad. And her dad's like, don't worry. This isn't that bad. Like, you're learning to control it. She's also like, he's also like, hey, like, you only lit that guy's boots on fire. You didn't kill him or anything like that. Like, you're getting so much better. It could have been so much worse. And she's like, she like freaks out. And she says something about, like, she blames herself for her mom dying. But the way that she says it is she literally just says, I killed mommy. Yeah. Which is not actually what happened. That's not at all what happened. And I was really confused because it seemed like, okay, well, she killed her mom. Yeah. And then we actually, like, from here get to a flash, or they, they, like, or shortly after this, we get to a flashback. Right. Where we see that she did not, but she says, like, oh, I killed mom. He's like, no, it wasn't your fault. But, like, in a way. It literally isn't her fault. But it literally wasn't even close to her fault. Right. So, basically, like, we kind of, in the next couple of scenes, like, they get away from the airport. The guys are still following them. They're, like, walking along and they, they try to get away from them. So they jump down the side of, like. Um, like a hill next to a highway and they slide onto the street and they're nearly hit by a a semi-truck and like by a 16-wheeler. They get away, they make it to a hotel. Flashback time again. Yeah, so that's all like really rushed and even though technically things that sound like they should be exciting, it's just not. No. Um, But so yeah, in the flashback, we see that Andy and Vicky, the little lovebird psychic kids, um, (laughs) are now married and they have their daughter, Charlie. And they are trying to, like, test out her abilities, and she's, like, uh, toasting a slice of bread. Yeah. And he's like, okay, control it. No, stop it. Stop it. It's all charred. And then she accidentally, like, lights it on fire. Yeah. And then she wants to keep going because she wants to keep getting better. And they want her to stop for the time being. And so she gets mad. Vicky's like, no, like, go to bed. We'll try again in the morning. Just, like, don't push yourself. And she's like, no, I want to do it. I want to do it. And then sets her mom's oven mitts on fire. Yeah. Which, that's her making mommy scream. That's what she means, is because she, like, burns her hands. Yeah. But Vicky doesn't die. I was, like, expecting her to light all of Vicky on fire and for, like, Vicky to be dead. But that's, like, literally not what happens in the scene. Um, But whatever. So she gets upset. She apologizes. And Andy tells her that, like, it's fine, but she needs to learn to control her abilities because it's a very bad thing. Like A very bad thing are the exact words that he uses. Yeah. And then they get a hang-up phone call. And Vicky's Apparently like, they've been getting a lot of these hang-up phone calls. It's what's implied. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I don't know who it is. And Vicky's like, yeah, you do. You do know who it is. It's obviously the guys from the shop. I expected there to be, like, an actual shop. <laughs> like, not in, like, like in a sense of it was, like, a, like, there was, like, a car shop. Like, a, 
uh, like you press a button or something like, like that lowers and you down into exactly where it was like cool. the shop is their cover mm-hmm. and so that's why they call them the shop it's never explained why they're called the shop no it's just like a cute little nickname yeah and i was like okay so it's the guys who are like the mechanics around the corner who are actually secretly fbi agents it was like or these dsi agents or whatever yeah and then um this whole flashback sequence is weird because it sort of keeps going in and out like he's back in the hotel and then it's a flashback again. I think it's like supposed hotel. to be him dreaming and he's like so. reliving all of it through his dreams. It's just really convenient dreams. We get another flashback which seems like it could be the next day. It's like shortly after at least. And Andy gets home and finds like the entire house a complete mess. And then he follows like a trail of blood spots and finds Vicky's dead body in the closet. Yes. And she has been murdered, not killed by Charlie, but like straight up murdered. Yeah, and she has like a bloody nose. There's like a rag stuffed in her mouth. Like clearly, she was not killed by Charlie here. So this is weird. Charlie's gone, and in apparently in the book, Charlie is at a sleepover at somebody else's house, and then they like the shop guys go find her at the other person's house. That stuff is really vague in the movie because he just like calls somebody and is like, "Hey, is my daughter at your house by any chance?" And then goes over to this other person's house. I think it's supposed to be, like, one of his neighbors or something. Yeah, but there's no explanation as to why she's there other than, like, maybe she ran away. But then the shop guys, like, run over and chloroform her there. Yep. And in so front of people. They're trying to kidnap her, and Andy ends up using his abilities and forces them to give her back. Yeah. And then he, like, blinds them all by just telling them, You're blind. You're blind. You're blind. And um, his neighbor, who came out from the house um and sees all this happening he's like joan you're gonna go inside and forget that all of this happened and she does yeah um and so that's how he got his daughter back and then we're back in the main timeline and yeah we have a very young martin sheen who's riding his bike to really bad 80s synth yeah and he is captain hollister uh, and so he goes into this fancy fancy office it's supposed to be in like dc or something like that but it straight up looks like it's in like the south like the full-on it looks like a southern plantation style like mansion yeah thing um and so he goes into this office and his secretary's there and she says that there's no update on the mcgee so like he's involved in the shop um and he goes into this office that looks like the fucking oval office i was (laughs) like oh it's president bartlett at it again but it's not he's much worse this was his pre-career that he reformed president bartlett would never do this okay first of all he would never do that you don't he know would, what people's paths he are He would like. never torture a child like this. He's the best New Hampshire president, and he is fictional. Technically, they don't, like, torture her. They take her, like, when they do grab her, they put her into a very, very nice room, and they ask her to light things on fire, and she says, okay. But they do separate her from her dad, which is yeah. really shitty. It's not good, but it's not torture. They're not, like, sticking things underneath her fingernails or waterboarding her or any shit. I guess that's true. He still would never do this. And they give her a friend, kind of? We'll get there. Uh, <laughs> I would say I said that's kind the of. most questionable thing that they do, but we will, yeah. Um, so speaking of her friend, this creepy guy named Rainbird is waiting in uh, Hollister's office. Okay. So Rainbird. In the book, he is Native American. In the movie, he looks like he's supposed to be. First off, his name is Rainbird. His name is John Rainbird, I think. Yeah. And so there's that. And he is a very, very white looking guy, though. But he's like... But he has like the long hair and the ponytail and like... Yeah, it's like every part of him looks like he's styled by someone who's trying to make him look Native American. But like he's like... Kind of not really. But he's George C. Scott. Like he's obviously not Native American. So I don't know if they were trying to say like, he's not Native American. He's just like a white version of the same character or they did a really bad job trying to make him Native American. It's kind of weird. 
I think that in the 80s, they probably didn't care too much about accuracy in that kind of situation. That could be they true. Were they were like, yeah, never, like, good enough. They never actively say whether or not he is. They don't no. address it. They just, like, call him Rainbird, which, like, could theoretically maybe kind of be a last name of a white person. I don't know. But uh, I found this quote from this, like, random blog, and I thought it was hilarious where they say, like, um, there's no denying that George C. Scott did a good job portraying the deeply creepy, semi-pedophilic serial killer character of John Rainbird to the point where I can't decide whether the blatant whitewashing of what was supposed to be a Native American character might actually have been a good thing because ain't nobody want that in their ethnic group. It's true. He's definitely not, like, he's not... If he were a Native American character, he would definitely not be good representation because he's very fucked up. Yeah. But whatever he is, he's this bizarre, bizarre character. Yeah. Um, and so he, he's chilling in, in Hollister's office and Dr. Wanless, who originally did the study on um, Vicky and Andy comes in um, and he's kind of explaining why the McGee's are such a huge threat Um Hollister apparently was like on board with the original study and now is like, this is fucked up and we shouldn't have done this. And he's like, well, we did and you approved it. So now we have to deal with the results, which are that he's concerned that because it's all based in the pituitary gland, right? Like the effects that lot six had were like entirely on the pituitary gland. Well, they said specifically for Charlie, it's in her pituitary gland, which is weird because they haven't actually looked at Charlie at all. Yeah. And their whole thing is like, she's going to go into puberty and she's going to become unstable. And like, what happens when you have like a girl going through puberty who's unstable, who has like the power of a nuclear bomb. And it's like, you're assuming a lot there. Yeah, they haven't even like given her a, like a, a physical or anything. Which like is, I that. guess what they want to do is they want to understand what part of the brain it is, and that's why they're trying to like grab her. I guess. But still, it's like weird, and also like kind of. I know preteens are like can be shitty at times, but I don't think she like was going to want to end the world because of the fact that she has like a crush on a boy or a girl or whatever. I don't know. Maybe she would have. We don't really know what she's going to turn into, which I guess is their point. But also, come on. They also mentioned that eight out, of t- 8 out of 10 of the participants in the study committed suicide and that Vicky and Andy are the only two who did not. Um, so again, they had a very different experience than most of the people involved in the study did. Um, and so Rainbird's like, okay, I can get them. Totally fine. I'll go get them for you. But um, But he wants Charlie after they're done experimenting on her. Yeah, he doesn't in this scene articulate why... And I think that you're supposed to think that he's, like, a child molester, which is definitely what I took away from it. I was looking him up, and in the books, apparently he says, like, not for anything sexual. He, like, clearly indicates that it is not for (laughs) any of those reasons. Well, in a later scene in the movie, he, like, expands on why he specifically wants her. But in the first scene, he's just like, I want the girl when you're done. It's so weird. And Hollister's like, why? And he's like, otherwise I won't find them, and I'll tell everyone about this whole situation and yep. you'll be fucked over. And he's like, okay, I guess it's that's so gross. gross. Charlie and Andy are still on the run and they decide that they're going to lay low, but also that Andy is going to try to mail a bunch of letters to like reputable news sources. Yeah. He wants to try and out what's gone on with Which the Which is shop. the opposite of laying low. Well, if he sends a letter, they don't know necessarily where it's coming from. I guess that's true. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Um, and so they hitchhike, they, they catch a, a ride in this guy's truck, and it's this old dude named Irv Manders. Yeah, and they're trying to go to Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. And he's like, I'll get you 10 miles closer. Um, but so as they're driving, Irv is like, do you guys want to come over for, like, lunch before you're going on? And 
Charlie is like, I'm really hungry. And also, they're going by fake names at this point. Yeah, um, she's Bobby. Well, she's Roberta, and he just starts calling her Bobby. Yeah, that's true. And then Andy is going by, like, Frank Dave? or Frank, something like that. Some, yeah. some other just generic name. And so he's like, come on over for lunch. And they're like, okay, sure. And so they go and they meet his wife, Norma. And apparently this couple's always wanted a little girl, which is yeah. one of the reasons why they invite them over. Which also, like, I got, like, a red flag there for a second. Like, oh, God, are they going to try and kidnap Everyone her? Everyone wants this child. It's really creepy because no one wants to do anything sexual with her, but, like... They just want her. Yeah, it's it's weird. Sending up a lot of flags. But Irv and Norma are nice They're people. really nice They're people. really, really sweet. They have chickens, and she goes and plays with the chickens. And so um, they all have lunch inside, and... Charlie is talking about her mom. She's like, my mom would always say, I mean, she always says. And right, because like they've, oh, told, no. they've told them that they're going to Knoxville so that they can see her mom who is in labor with their second child. And then she says this thing at lunch that like basically is like, before my mom died, like heavily implies that her mom is dead or not in the picture anymore. Yeah, and so um, the wife, Norma, and Charlie, they go outside to feed the chickens so Irv can talk to Frank or Andy and Andy immediately second. is like, yeah, it's not Frank. That's totally not my real He's name. like, we already know that. He's like, yep. He's like, so did you kidnap this girl? And she's like, no, this is actually my daughter, but the mom's dead. And kind of explains the whole situation, including all this stuff about Lot 6. And Irv is like, y'all are crazy. You need to turn yourself in. Yeah. But he also explains that the shop is actually like a nickname for the DSI, the Department of Scientific Intelligence. So it is like a government, yeah. you know, entity. Um, but then... Um, Charlie and Norma come back inside and Charlie immediately knows. She's like, oh my God, you told. And he's like, yes. And then uh, Charlie starts freaking out and like the butter starts boiling and the temperature in the room goes up because they have a little thermometer on the wall. And Irv is like, oh shit, you weren't lying. Yeah. And then Charlie's like, by the way, there are guys on the way here right now. And it was too late for them to get away or anything like that. Yeah. So um, she's like, I'm going to go outside. Irv's like, I'm going to go get my gun to help you guys out. And Andy's like, please don't. You're not going to need it. I think that's what he actually says. um, And so the agents come towards the house and Charlie's like, hey, you should probably leave. And they're like, no, we're not going to. And (laughs) Irv, God bless Irv, does come out with his gun. And he's like, you guys can get off my land because you, you don't have a warrant. You can come back with a warrant if you want one. And they're like, we're from the, like, DSI were like a government group like we, these people are wanted for questioning that's all we don't need a warrant for that and he's, he's like, like unless I woke up in Russia this morning you do I love Irv he's, he's really an great. angel he's the best character in this entire movie he is so uh yeah they don't want to leave and so Charlie's just like let me show you what I got here in my brain yeah and so shit gets wild Irv is shot but not fatally like he starts shooting at people and then is shot in like the shoulder or something yeah, like that yeah um but a bunch of other people die because charlie sets all of them on fire and just starts blowing up cars left and right yeah it's amazing she's a badass that part is actually kind of cool it was um she does like kind of lose control of the situation because her dad is like okay you don't need to blow up every single car let them like drive away and she's like no and she doesn't say no but she keeps going so yeah she doesn't kill all of them though like a couple people do get away they do they run away just because they didn't stick around if they stuck around they would not be alive right and irv gives them his jeep and at first norma is like why are you still helping them and then she's like actually you know what yes please give them the jeep so that they can get the fuck off our property <laughs> like, well um irv also says something about like what am i supposed to do like turn him into the secret police should i be just a good nazi and it was like a nice moment yeah i mean he's a solid guy irv's a good dude I yeah like so him. um they give them the Jeep and they leave. Um, and it turns out they were on their way to a house that used to be Andy's dad's house. Who Charlie calls Granther? 
I did not I don't know if you that. caught that. She I calls him Granther instead of grandfather, and I hate it. I hate <laughs> it so much. No child would ever say that. I'm going to, like, train your children to call your dad Granther. He'll be so confused. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> only um, your dad, though. Only my dad. <laughs> Uh, so then there's, yeah, so they're, they're at this house on the lake and it's really beautiful. It's out in the woods. They hide the car. So they write the letters and then like they go to bed for the evening and Charlie's like talking to her dad and she's like, do you think that I'll ever like be able to be normal again? Like, can I ever just go to school and live a normal life? And Andy's like, yeah, for sure. Even though like, no, obviously not. Like she has psychic firepowers. That's not going to happen. He says as soon as these letters are published, that's when this will be able to be to happen. (laughs) Which... If anything will give your child a normal life, it's everyone knowing she has superpowers and is being hunted by a government entity. <laughs> That'll definitely help. She'll just be able to go to school. It'll be normal. See, my theory was that they were saying, like, okay, once, like, the DSI has been outed, the DSI won't want to get them anymore because, like, there isn't anything to cover up by killing them. I guess, but then she'll be, like, a celebrity anyway. Well, maybe they wouldn't include her name. They'd include his name. I don't know. Maybe. Two I names. still feel like they would find out. But who knows? So then we get a scene of um, Rainbird breaking into Dr. Wanless's home and karate chopping him in the face to death. That is the entire scene. The weirdest part of this scene is that in every other scene in this movie, Dr. Wanless is wearing these thick-ass glasses <laughs> that, like, make him look like a completely different person. Well, he was asleep, so obviously he wasn't wearing them. I didn't realize it was him. I was like, why is he just karate chopping this guy to death? I honestly, for a hot sec, thought it was Irv, because you don't really see the guy's face very much. And I was like, oh, they're getting revenge on Irv. But then Irv shows up alive later, so it wasn't him. Yeah. So I was a little confused, too, because it's just not obvious. I literally thought they included a scene in this just to show that he could do that. And I was like, this is... I mean, it's impressive. One hit on the nose. Yeah. The weirdest part is that I recognized the actor in this scene, but I didn't recognize him as Dr. (laughs) Wallace in any of the other scenes, even though I've seen him in other shit. That's really funny. Incredible. Okay. And now we're back uh, with the McGee's. Um, so the next morning, they go into town to drop off the letters at the post office. But a woman sees them. Yes, and she borrows the phone of the place that she is shopping at and calls Captain Hollister. And she's like, yo, I, these people are here. You might want to know. Yeah. And Rainbird's like, all right, remember, I'm going to go get these guys. But like, once you're done with Charlie, she's mine. And he's like, that's gross. But OK, I guess so. And he says, like, she's very young and very beautiful, and she has the power See, of the gods the in her. the thing, is that if he hadn't said the part about her being very beautiful, I wouldn't have immediately gone quite as hard to the, like, pedophile place. And then he follows it up with, she and I are going to be very close. That makes it, that, that's so creepy. Why it's would you so ever creepy. say that? Anyway. Um, so... Two of the guys go and collect the letters, right? By killing the mailman. Yes. Seems extreme, but apparently that's how they want to handle it. So they, like, pretend that they have car trouble, and the mailman pulls over, and then they fucking murder him and take the letters. Yeah, and so apparently in the book, like I said earlier, they leave the mailman alive. But, and so the whole idea, he's like, no, but this is the U.S. mail. It's supposed to be protected. And it's being, like, he is being attacked by... The U.S. government, even though he works for the U.S. government, technically. Fucked up. And so it's, like, this whole fucked up situation where he's just, like, scarred and, like, loses faith in, like, the Postal Service as That's an organization. That's such a weird concept. Okay, I get that, like, there's a lot more character development in the book, but just the, the concept of there being, like, a subplot about just a disillusioned mailman is actually pretty <laughs> funny, to be honest So in this you. one, they just kill him. Yeah. 
Um, and then Charlie and her dad are leaving for the day. Wait, but what happens to all the other mail? Is it just gone forever? It's just gone. Is it going to get delivered by someone else? The true tragedy of this movie is all Where that did the mail, mail go? Yeah. Um, and Charlie's leaving uh, the lake house with her dad. And she's like, I'm never going to start another fire in my life. And her dad's like, great, that's good. Don't. And then she gets shot in the neck yeah, by Rainbird, who's, like, hiding in a tree. The weirdest thing about this scene to me was that when he goes to shoot her, he aims the sight up to his blind eye. Because he has one blind eye, and that's the one that he uses to aim. Oh, wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> I did not notice. That's brilliant. It's really weird. Um, and so he gets Andy as well, as Andy's, like, freaking out about Charlie. And then a bunch of guys in hazmat suits pop out of the woods. Yep. And she drops her teddy bear into the green, green lake. Uh-huh. Why is this lake so green? Probably because algae. Well, it's like it's like emerald. Yeah, a lot of algae. A lot. A lot of algae. So they get taken to the shop. They're separated. Um, we meet Dr. Pinchot, who is kind of like the doctor in charge of the whole situation. And um, Hollister kind of explains to Charlie that he wants her to show off her powers. And she's like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm not going to ever light any fires anymore. And he's like, okay, well, we'll see. And then Rainbird... <laughs> Decides to get involved in the creepiest way possible. Yeah, so Rainbird, for like pretty much the rest of the movie, he poses as an orderly taking care of her room. So he shows up every day to clean it. And like he goes in one time and she's playing video games. And he's like, oh, can I play with you? And she's like, no. And the next time he goes in, he's cleaning. And she's like, you know, I'm not that dirty. You don't need to clean up with me every day. And she's like, oh, he's like, oh, well, it's my job. And then there's a storm and the power goes out. And he like has a fucking meltdown and like tells her about it like a nom story, which is like a fucked up thing to say to a child. Yeah, he was like tortured and stuck in a pit and like fed molding rice and had to like eat spiders and stuff and so now he's scared of the dark and she's like comforting him but then he like puts his hand on like her knee and thigh and i'm like uh don't do that and she's like wearing like a gymnastics yeah there's a lot of weird leotard thing again they like really let you think some shady shit is happening but the room they put her in is like real nice yeah they're all they're both in really nice setups and like she has so, so many stuffed animals like really nice stuffed animals so he convinces her to like start using her powers he's like just like do it as much as you want. Don't worry about what they tell you. And eventually they'll let you go. Yeah. And in the meantime, her dad is basically, he's lost his powers because he spent so much time trying to control her powers and like get them out of like. Well, not just that, but when he showed up at the place, they gave him some drugs. Right. And so he takes the drugs and when he's in his like kind of drugged up state, he can't use his powers for the life of him. Right. And so he kind of goes off the drugs and he's like hiding yeah. them away. And it's kind of like a smaller plot than the stuff going on with Charlie, but this is all happening simultaneously. So they end up testing Charlie out, and she lights some wood chips on fire, um, and then she, like, has to direct the fire into, like, a bathtub of water, which also catches on fire. Yeah, water apparently can catch on fire. I learned that And this movie. And Hollister is super excited, um, and everybody's like, okay, well, they can just, she can never see her father again, because if she sees him again, he'll tell her what to do, and she'll do anything he tells her to do. Right, and, and he's and- mad. They had promised that she'd be able to see her dad if she did this. And so instead they, like, give her the opportunity to go horseback riding with Rainbird and on a horse named Necromancer. Which is unbelievable and so fucking cool. I want a horse named Necromancer. It's a big black horse named Necromancer. It's awesome. And so basically he just, like, convinces her to keep doing the tests. And she lights, like, a cinder block wall on fire and blows the door off its hinges and, like, really has to cool herself back down again because it's easy for the power to get away from her. Um, and she's like, I'm going to see my dad. And they're like, no, you'll see your dad later. And she's like, no, I'm going to see my dad. And they're like, 
uh, we'll figure something out. And then meanwhile, um, yeah, so as we mentioned, Andy has, like, decided to completely stop taking the pills that take his powers away. But he is, like, pretending to be really into them. In the books, apparently he actually, like, develops an addiction to these pills. Yeah. um, And has to, like, use his mind powers on himself in order to get him to stop taking the pills. Like, using a mirror, which is kind of cool. Interesting. Um, But so he stops taking them he but he's still pretending to be drugged out he'll like put the pills in his mouth and as soon as um the captain guy like leaves the room he like takes them out and dumps them in the toilet yeah but we can tell that like he's getting his abilities back because he can change the channel on the television with his mind yep and then hollister and rainbird have this conversation where hollister's like you know that like as soon as she finds out you're working with us she's gonna kill you right and he's like no no once i have her I'm going to make her happy because John the Friendly Orderly is the only person in the world who can make her happy. And then when she's the happiest she's ever been in her entire no, life. He doesn't even say the happy. He's like in the happiest moment of her entire life. Right. Which also gives me creepy sexual vibes. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's, this movie was so weird and they so really, creepy in that they way. They didn't need to make there's it just, seem so creepy. There's a lot. Of, like You can have someone who is scary who is not scary in that way. And like in the book... Again, I haven't read the book, but I read a couple articles about it afterwards. And it said, like, they went out of their way to make sure those vibes were not in there, really. Or they were a lot more toned down. In the movie, they did nothing to reduce it. And they actually, like, amplified it. (laughs) It's a really weird choice. Um, I mean, he's definitely super scary. So I guess there's that. But, but... yeah. So what he says is, like, at the happiest moment of his life, he's going to, like, hit her in the... Like, do the karate chop thing on her nose. And what it does is it sends, like, splint... It breaks the nose and it sends splinters into the brain and so it kills her instantly so that way she doesn't suffer and she's killed like she has a quick death and hollister's like "Uh, okay what the fuck but okay and then he (laughs) says that um she has this like great power and he's hoping that if he kills her that when he dies which he hopes is very soon that he'll hopefully take that great power with him into the next world and that's why he wants to do this it's a very weird general concept um but again they don't explain why he feels that way at all i don't like it it's just that one scene where he's just like here are my thoughts i'm gonna karate chop this child in the face and hollister's like okay i guess that's okay and in the meantime hollister is trying to keep them separated right trying to keep andy and charlie separated and so he tries to send andy to hawaii yeah so um when andy's like pretending to be super drugged out he's like how about we like you need some rest that's why your powers aren't working let's send you to this place we got in maui it'll be great he's like okay and so hollister and andy go outside and they're walking around talking about it and andy uses his fancy mind tricks on hollister yeah and at first he like tests it out by like making him think that a rope that he's holding is a snake and then once he knows that he has him, he's like, okay, so, like, you're going to come with me. And also, Charlie's going to come with me. And he's like, no, you can't bring Charlie. And he's like, no, no, we're going to bring Charlie. And he's like, okay, we'll bring Charlie. And he's like, so, like, we're going to take this helicopter, and then what? And he's like, well, you're going to take the helicopter, you're going to go to this army transport plane. And he's like, and then do we just fly straight from here to Hawaii or what? And he's like, no, no, we'll have to stop in California to refuel. And he's like, okay, that's great to know. So I think the implication there is that he's going to, like, get off the plane in California and like go live his own life and so he writes a note for Hollister to deliver to Charlie um basically telling her to meet him in the stables at 8 p.m that night which is when they're supposed to leave and so um oh poor sweet Charlie so Hollister gives tells someone to give the note to Charlie and she does but Rainbird's there at the same time and so she's like Rainbird Rain or John John because she calls him John she doesn't call him Rainbird um she's like guess what like, my dad sent me a note, and we're going to meet at the stables at 8 p.m. tonight. And he's like, great, I can take you if you want. 
And she's like, no. Yeah, someone else is taking her. Um, But Rainbird, now knowing the plan, goes into the stables that night and is, like, hiding on, like, one of the top rafters, like, under a bunch of hay. It's really weird. Yeah, and so she has an escort there with her, and, like, the escort doesn't want to leave her before, you know, the rest of the guys come, because he doesn't realize that there's anything else going on. But she, like, kind of burns his hand, and he's like, okay, never mind, I'm gonna go. Yeah, I think he's holding a gun, and he, like, pulls it out, and she, like, heats up the gun. Yeah. And so he leaves, and Rainbird is like, hey, come on up to the attic where I am, up here. And she's like, okay, and starts to climb up, you know, up to, like, the, what is that term for, like, the hayloft? Yes. He's up in the hayloft. But then um, Hollister and Andy approach. I think I don't think she actually gets up into the no, attic No, she's, like, all. halfway up the hayloft when Hollister and Andy show up. And she's like, Dad! And she runs over, and her and her dad are reunited, and it's really sweet. Yeah. And they're like, we're gonna go. And she's like, great, can my friend John come, too? And they're like, oh, what? And Hollister is still... Under mind control power uh, Yeah, he's stuff. still in mind controls. And uh, so he's just like, oh, yeah, no, that guy is not your friend. He is super scary and dangerous. Yeah, and Andy is also saying those things. And she's like, no, that's not true. And Andy's like, no, John is, like, the guy who brought us here. Like, we can't... And she, like, freaks out. Yeah. Understandably. And so she's gonna, like, light him on fire. And he's like, instead... If you do that, you're going to light all these horses on fire because we're in a stable full of horses. You don't want to kill Necromancer, do you? Right, not Necromancer. Um, And so Rainbird's like, if you come up here, I won't shoot your father. But if you don't come up here, then I will shoot your father. And she's like, okay, I guess I'm going to go up there then. And so she starts climbing up there and Andy turns on Hollister and is like, hey, shoot Rainbird. And so Hollister does. And then he uses his fancy mind control on Rainbird. And he's like, you're going to jump down. And he's like, no. And then he does it. Yeah. And he does, but he also shoots Andy. So Andy is like dying. And Charlie's super pissed off. And Charlie sets Rainbird hella on fire. Yeah. But first, Rainbird shoots the gun at her. Mm-hmm. And she stops the bullet in midair and, like, burns it? Explodes it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, what the heck? Yeah. And so she lights the whole barn up. Um, she blows the doors off of all the stables so that the horses The horses run out. out. It's okay. Because yeah. she, like, burns Rainbird, shoots him against the doors, him and the doors are burning together. The doors burn off and the horses run free. Yeah. Everyone's okay. And Andy's last well, words to Charlie are to burn it all down. And she's like, she's okay. She's like, kill anyone who gets in your way. So she super does that. And then it's about like a 10 minute montage of her just killing people and burning things with her mind. And like everyone's shooting guns at her constantly, but now she's like bulletproof. Yeah. She can just explode all the bullets before they hit her. And it's literally, yeah, like you said, like it's 10 minutes of just her walking away from the shop and just like lighting everything on fire. Yep. Um, and then she ends up, um, well, my favorite part of it is that she ends this whole like chaotic scene saying, for you, daddy. Yeah, which is kind of sweet and also fucking terrifying. Yeah. So she hitches a ride back to the Manders farm where she is reunited with Irv and Norma. Yeah. And Norma's, like, chill with it now, I guess? I don't know. Well, I think that they didn't like the guy. And also, like, they always wanted the daughter. And so this, like, eight-year-old girl with, like, powers shows up on your doorstep and being like, my dad's dead. Please take care of me. I don't know what to do. They're going to do it. That's true. And what they also do is they take her to the New York Times so that she can tell them her story in person. And that's the end of it. I was happy it was over. It sounds like it would be interesting because of all the shit that happens in that. And how long it took to talk about it. But it's so, so boring. And I know I mentioned a couple times about how, like, bad the music is. And I want to give some context to how bad this music is. So it's all just random, like, 80s synth stuff. And not, like, cool 80s synth, like, 
the fake 80s synth that like Stranger Things has and stuff. It just doesn't really make sense. And the reason why I found out is because it was Tangerine Dream was the one who they did the music for this, but they never saw the movie. <laughs> So they, they were just like guessing. They were just no, like, they just sent like it the director a ton of music. And they're like, here's a ton of music. Use whatever you want. That does actually explain a lot. Because this movie tonally is just all over the place. Like, it just, it's really weird. Like, I mean, it's not like, it made more sense of like an alien comedy movie or something. Like, yeah. it doesn't make sense for a fire, like a fire filled explosion fest. No, I don't think synth was the right choice for this at all like they could have done like some solid rock and roll in there they also could have actually had like maybe something with some sort of spooky atmosphere yeah honestly this movie does not have a lot of spooky atmosphere i mean give us a theremin i would love a theremin in this movie honestly. it'd be so spooky like every time that her like hair blows back it's just like exactly that would be really corny but it would be better than what it is honestly this was like corny and just like off tone as stephen king put it since this is, as we mentioned, based off of a book uh, by Stephen King, which was published in 1980, uh, he described this movie as flavorless, like cafeteria mashed potatoes. That sounds about right, but he did love Drew Barrymore in this. I mean, she's great in this. She's really good, she's and like he really loved her. And um, and I think it was the next Stephen King movie made, Cat's Eye, mm-hmm. which is like an anthology of three different short stories. The last one wasn't actually a short story he already had. It was one he wrote specifically for her. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. I mean, she's awesome in this. She she really is. She was a great... There's a reason that she got super famous as a child actress, and so yeah. she's really good at it. Um. The most disappointing fact about this movie is that it was originally supposed to be directed by John Carpenter, which would have been so much better because he is good at directing movies. Um, And they had like a whole different script. Like he had commissioned a script and Stephen King had approved it and everybody was on board and I feel like it would have been cool. It might have actually been slightly scary in some sort of moment. You would think. But then because the thing flopped in theaters. Ugh. Universal pulled him off of it, which is especially frustrating in retrospect because the thing is a fucking classic. I haven't actually seen it. It's so good. And it, it is like a really good, creepy sci-fi horror movie. And I think that like it would have been a really good, like this would have been a really solid follow-up to that movie for him. But instead um, they pulled John Carpenter off of it and replaced him with Mark L. Lester. And it's just... Bad call, Universal. It's just, I mean... The script is apparently very close to the um, to the book, like we said, but it's just, like, so boring. Minus everything that I think made the book good, it's from like, what I understand. Yeah, it, yeah, I don't know. It just, nobody seems to have enjoyed making this movie. Um, I don't, it's just a drag. It's just not a very good movie. And, like, there are little details. Like, for example, in the book, um, Andy has a stroke from using his powers too much. Yeah, it feels like it's a little bit darker in a lot of ways. Like, you talked about, like, him developing the addiction to the drugs that they put him on. Or the fact that the shop pulls off Vicky's fingernails I actually as have a, a theory method. about this. Mm. My theory, and I have not, like I said, I haven't read the book. I've probably said that 20 times in this podcast. But mm-hmm. reiterating, like, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if... So Vicky had pain in her hands, right, when she was dying mm. because of the fingernails. Yeah. But also her hands were burnt, like, the day before. And so I wonder if Charlie was like, oh, the pain in her hands is, like, what, one of the things that killed her, and that's why Charlie blames herself for her mom's death. That seems like a bit of a stretch. It is, but it was the only thing I could think of knowing that the fingernails were pulled off as to why Charlie could possibly think it was her fault in any way, shape, or form. I think it's probably just that, like, she knew 
people were after her and then those people killed her mom so she thinks it's her fault actually that makes a lot more sense i think is probably what it is okay never mind but like the reason that he comes home early and finds her dead body in the book is because he can feel like since they have a psychic connection he can feel the pain in her in her hands and is like oh shit i gotta go home can you imagine how terrifying it would be to have a psychic connection with your significant other i would not want that no neither would i i feel like at times we have almost a psychic connection in that we both are thinking the same thing most of the time. But yes, but I imagine every single one. thought in your head. No, I would not want that. I don't want that. No, definitely not. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, ugh, it seems like they cut so much cool shit. They did. I will say I noticed a very strong similarity between this, like the concept, or not, I guess not the overall plot, but like the character of Carrie in Carrie and the character of Charlie in this. Um... I mean, like, the the climactic scene in this movie is almost exactly the same in a different location, but it's the same thing that happens in Carrie, where it's just, like, this one girl who's been through all this crazy shit, just, like, burning shit down to get revenge on her tormentors. Well, what's also really interesting is in the book at the end of Carrie, they actually talk about, like, what would happen if the government could get their hands on, like, those powers. Boom! There and you then go. this happens. And I think it's interesting that when they're talking about her, they're talking about, when they're talking about Charlie, they talk about how, like... If she's she going hits to blow puberty, the world when she like yeah. exactly like shit's gonna go crazy and puberty is when carrie's powers set in so it just feels plus obviously carrie's a stephen king character as well it just feels like there's such a strong similarity yeah there. and stephen king actually um talked about the similarity and he kind of thought about it when he was writing it and so i found a quote from him that said i had this depressing feeling that i was a 30 year old man who had already lapsed into self-imitation and once that begins, self-parody cannot be far away. The only way that I could return to Firestarter was upon rereading what I had written and realizing that not only was it less like Carrie than I thought, it was also better than Carrie. And I realized that it should be possible for a writer to revisit themes if it betters his work. I thought that critics might claim that Steve King had started to eat himself, but I realized that they would do no such thing if I were a serious novelist. They would say, King is attempting to amplify themes that are intrinsic to his work. And with that in mind, I made my peace with Firestarter. And I think that is a good point, because as similar as their characters are, um, the story, like, you know, the story is not the same. Um, I think having it being shot very similarly in the movie kind of draws an extra connection between the two of them. But honestly, like the plot overall is different, like different stuff happens. And, and I definitely do agree that like, if he was working in a genre that people considered to be more like literary or important or whatever, yeah, they would just be like, Oh, this is a theme that shows up a lot in King's work. Um, but it's just that that theme is like, young girls who light shit on fire with their <laughs> brains and that's like a little bit specific well carrie doesn't actively light stuff on fire with her brain she like that's knocks true. shit over she is destroys. only telekinetic yeah she is not pyrokinetic which and fun fact apparently the word pyrokinesis was invented in this book like there were already talks about people who could light things on fire with their minds but they'd never like had a word to describe what it was and so um but the word telekinetic and telekinesis like that did exist and so he wanted a word to parallel it but that meant something revolving fire and so that's how uh pyrokinesis was formed as a word thank you stephen king i read after you told me this because maddie revealed that piece of information to me and i find it fascinating um so telekinesis the telepart means from far away kinesis means moving or motion so pyrokinesis technically means moving fire which i guess she does technically do she does kind of do 
but technically like the correct way of phrasing it would actually be telepyrosis, which would mean fire coming from far away. So like being able to shoot fire at things with your brain. Well, too bad because no one made that word and See, used that's the it. thing. If you wait around too long, you end then up- Then a 30-year-old novelist will have to make up the word for you. Oh God, he was only like, he was only two years older oh than my God. us when he wrote this. And this wasn't remotely his first work. Nope. Stephen King's not a normal human, and it doesn't make sense to compare ourselves to him. He's an unbelievable person who was. I just hope by the time, the gods like I'm horrible. 31 or 32, I've invented a word that people now use. I mean, time is fucking running out, Maddie. I'm working on it. Okay. And so, not only is this similar to Carrie, but honestly, like this is a consistent theme throughout Stephen King's works, where there's someone who is like a societal outcast because of the fact that they have these psychic powers. You see this in like The Shining. You yeah. see this in um, The Dead Zone. You in see Carrie it in again. Carrie. Yeah. Um, it's something that consistently pops up. And uh, Douglas E. Winter is the one who kind of pointed this out in his, um, I think it was a book called Stephen King, The Art of Darkness. And yeah, it says his works repeatedly dramatize the compelling human consequences of the possession of strange talents by developing a sympathetic reader identification with the protagonist and then producing an intense conflict on both the physical and emotional levels that culminates in a confrontation with the person who has evoked their talents. But see, and that's where the movie lacks is because that is what Stephen King is so good at. And that's why his stories are so good is that there's these really interesting things happening to the characters, but you can still relate to the characters. The characters are very human. They're not just like two-dimensional characters on screen. Yeah. Which and is what these just, are. Yeah, it just doesn't come across that same way. Like, you don't get a lot of, like, Andy and Vicky's relationship. Like, you don't get a lot of, like, what their life is like before they have to go into hiding. And other than, like, a basic father-daughter relationship where, like, the dad loves his daughter and wants to take care of her, like, you don't really get a sense of what's at stake for them personally you know any any more than any other character would want to protect their daughter um and i think that that's sort of maybe part of the issue and it kind of does a disservice to stephen king's work because that's something that he is really good at in terms of writing i think there are a couple other connections um to the shining as well um one is that in the movie we hear andy call charlie's ability like the bad thing and that's also how in The Shining in the book that Jack's alcoholism is referred to. Ooh, that's a good point. Yeah, so I found this really random blog that just like reviews Stephen King a lot. It's a Stephen King reviewed.blogspot.com. That is a very accurate name, and I respect yep. that. And so uh, they're the ones who talked about the fact that, um, based on the fact that both of these things are called the bad thing, you can kind of could hint at the idea that Charlie like enjoyed her powers before it turned into a bad thing. I mean, she doesn't want to stop when exactly. they're toasting the toast, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's it's an interesting parallel. That is kind of interesting because it's almost like in this sort of the characters of Jack and um, Danny in The Shining are sort of flipped with Charlie and Andy in in uh, Firestarter, where jack is the one who is like dangerous and destructive not because he has a psychic power but because something's in his head and there is like the alcoholism that's the parallel if, if we're talking about that is maybe that being the bad thing ghost is a special power maybe and then like danny has the psychic ability and he tries to use those to get people out of danger which is exactly the same way that andy uses his in order to try to protect his daughter so it's almost like The Shining kind of flips like the protective child-parent relationship so that the child is trying to protect the parent instead of the parent trying to protect the child. 
And this yeah. is like the straight version of that. Stephen King has a lot of like parent-child weird things going on in his books. Yeah, a yeah, lot a of lot dysfunctional of... relationships there. Yeah, I think this one wasn't like a bad relationship between them, but like their lives were kind of dysfunctional, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of almost more like a. It's been a while since I read Pet Cemetery, but the idea that like you can try to protect your child and still fail, like in Pet Cemetery, the reason that like everything goes insane is because he tries to bring his dead child back. Like, yeah, that is a really strong concept that comes up a lot in Stephen King's work is like your role as a parent and how you can fail and adding like a supernatural or like a horror element to like what the stakes are in terms of failing your child as a parent. It's like so much more dramatic when like it could literally be the end of the world or like a ghost could take your child or whatever, you know? So we've obviously talked a lot about like the different things that Stephen King has done um, in terms of his other works, but this was also super relevant when the book and then the movie came out because this was like when a bunch of information was released about the fact that like the U.S. government had actually been testing on people. Yeah, I feel like that was a huge surprise. Like when it came out that like MK Ultra was a real thing and not yeah. just like a crazy conspiracy theory. Like I definitely do think that a lot of things that get blamed on MK Ultra might still be a little bit on the conspiracy theory side of things. I think some are, but like there are a ton of different types of experiments. Like they deliberately infected people with like deadly diseases. They exposed people to like random weapons. Like they definitely really things. did give people hallucinogens and yeah. stuff like that. And that actually ties back also to Jacob's Ladder, which I know you haven't seen. I have not seen it yet, but, but we're um, going to do it Jacob's Ladder is a 1990s horror movie. It's not as well known as some of the others, but it's all about this guy Jacob starts seeing all of these like hallucinations and stuff like that. And there's a lot of biblical elements to it where it's like kind of like evil and good fighting for him potentially. But he thinks a lot of it's being potentially um, caused by the fact that him and the people in his group at, in the war were all drugged by the government. Mm. And it's because it's been happening to everyone in his group. That's interesting because then in this one we have John Red or John Rainbird, who I guess, I guess in the movie it's never clear whether or not he's lying about his time in Vietnam. I think in the book he makes it up. Like, really? I don't think that that really happened to him in the book. I, I think that that's one thing that I read about in terms of a difference between the book and the movie. Um, but then he is the one who's working for the government and helping people do this kind of shit to other people. Like, No, I think he, he was, because that's actually how he lost his eye was it was a bomb. I think he might have oh. made up the story about being in the pit, but he actually okay. wasn't yeah. at war. So, yeah, so it's interesting that then, like, John Rainbird, who is a Vietnam vet, is, like, on board with helping people out. So it's, I don't know, it's kind of like... Yeah, I mean, I actually read a really, um, a, a short snippet of a book called Medicine Bags and Dog Tags. It's all about American Indian veterans from colonial times to the second Iraq war. And it talks about how, like, a lot of times in fiction, people will just assign characters the role of a vet. So that way it's like, oh, that's why this character is, like, antisocial and obsessed with violence and, like, wants to kill everyone. That's just, like, a kind of a cop-out to make a character, like, have a reason for the way they are. That's fucked up. Yep. Correct. Yeah. But who even knows if he was actually supposed to be a Native American in this movie? I know. It's very hard to say what is supposed to be happening in this movie. That's, yeah. <laughs> the only hint to it is potentially the name. I guess he has, yeah. like, long hair, which is, like, a common trope you see. Yeah. But, like... I guess that's because he's styled, like, a like a stereotypical Native American character. And my dad used to have, like, waist-length hair and wear it in a ponytail, and that that's didn't true. mean anything. That's also true. And then so finally, I mean, I think that uh, in terms of the government testing on people, there's actually like an allusion to the Nazis testing on people when Irv is like, am I supposed to be a good Nazi? And I think in the book he says, am I supposed to be like a good German instead of the word Nazi, but they wanted to make it more obvious in the movie. Yeah. And so the whole idea is like, I'm not going to hand people over to be tested on constantly. 
So it's a yeah, good I mean, at taking from like... real life examples of people being like horrifically tested on. Yeah. And obviously, you know, nobody got superpowers out of the situation, but like, yeah, the amount of things that like governments have done to their people are it's real messed up. Oof. Yikes. And then finally, I mean, I think this is probably just worth mentioning is uh, this is actually the movie that kind of set Drew Barrymore on the not so great path that made her like go into rehab at like I think it was like 12 or 13. Yeah. Um, Because she had. Which is crazy when you think about it. Yeah. Because she like there were so many articles written about the fact that she was supposed to be the next Shirley Temple. Like she was so charismatic. Um, She was fantastic in movies and on screen and everything like that. Yeah. But at the after party here, she, like, bet two guys she could drink two glasses of champagne. And she downed two... Who would take that bet with an eight-year-old? Yeah, it was a bad idea. And she did. And that was the first time she ever passed out from drinking. And the first time uh, she ever, like, got drunk, I think. That's so fucked up. Because it's, like... I feel like a lot of people know that about Drew Barrymore. Like, because that is, like, a part of her story. And it's one that she hasn't been, like, super... Like, she's acknowledged it and and stuff like that. And it's something that happened and it sucks. I mean, she... Is now sober. Yeah, she is, is fucking killing it oh in God. life. She's amazing. I love Drew Barrymore so. But it's much. just so insane to see her in this movie, and she's a she's a child. Like she's a little tiny child, and to like think of that happening at that point in her life is like so upsetting and so mind blowing. Like, but you know, obviously, amazing job for her for getting it together. And yeah, because it's great to off. see because yeah. obviously all the filming happened before any of that started. Right, and so to see like how talented she really was as a little actress. Because she's honestly one of the best actors in this movie, period. Yeah, she's she's great. It's like her and Martin Sheen, I would say, are the two strongest. And uh, Irv. Irv's great. Irv's great, but Irv's great just because he's a wonderful angel. That's true. But I mean, he plays the role of like knowing, but like not going to say that he knows really well. That's true. Um, I love Irv. He has a lot of good subtleties in his performance. Stephen King really did not like the guy who played Andy and said he had stupid eyes. He does have stupid eyes he in does. this movie. He really He does. looks really, really high the entire movie. He absolutely does. And he kind of squints. But he's still dealing with insane LSD flashbacks. The actor or is? Lot six flashbacks. Oh, I thought the actor was. And I was <laughs> <No>. like, damn. <laughs> no, no, just... Just Andy as a character. That's true, I guess. I wasn't a fan of Andy very No, much. he was fine, but not... He just seemed kind of like a Generic stoner dude. dude from the 70s yeah. who, like, got a role in a movie. Eh, he's fine. He's not... I mean, it's... He wasn't bad. Yeah. He just wasn't, like, anything special. That's kind of how I feel about this whole movie. Not terrible, but really not anything special. Not as bad as Amityville Horror. No, but, like, more stuff happens in Amityville Horror. I disagree. This has a semblance well, of a plot. Okay, yeah, this has more plot. Amityville Horror, I would say, has more scary moments. That's true. Like, there's more legitimate scares in Amityville Horror than there are in this movie. This movie is not scary. No, I thought this was supposed to be a horror movie. I did, too. That's what it says. It's a Stephen King story. How could it not be horror? But it's not scary. It's, like, sci-fi at... Just sci-fi. Sci-fi thriller at best, I guess. Yeah, it's okay. I wouldn't pay for it again. No. So next week, next episode. We're going episode, to actually watch a real good scary horror movie. Yes. We are going to watch Hereditary. Which we both saw in theaters. And it is fucked up. I'm excited guys. for it. It's really, it's, it's, watch it. It's so good. I don't want to tell you anything about it. Except for that. That's Maddie's impression of one of the main characters. And it's perfect. Yep. So please watch Hereditary. We're going to talk about it next week or uh, in two weeks from now. Um, and in the meantime, um, drive safe. Uh, if your child develops brain powers, just just love them. 
you know, just give yeah, him I a mean, hug. I think this entire situation could have been avoided if they just like treated her nicely. Yeah. Just don't make her do tests. No. Let her be a kid. Let her light toast on fire with her brain if she wants Maybe to. Maybe don't sign up for weird government drug trials. Yeah, do not let the government inject you with hallucinogenics. That's the real moral here. That is absolutely the moral that we're going to close this episode out on. Thank you so much for listening. We love you very much. Goodbye. And we'll talk to you later. Mwah. <laughs>